0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is sociologist David Leonard. We are discussing his book, After Our Test, The NBA and the Assault on Blackness, published in 2012 by the State University of New York Press. The brawl at the Palace is one of the most notorious events in recent American sports. On November 19, 2004, with only seconds left in a game between the Indiana Pacers and the host Detroit Pistons, fights erupted between the Indiana players and spectators after a Detroit fan threw a drink cup at Pacers player Ron Artest. Our test was suspended for the rest of the season for chasing the fan into the seats and throwing punches. And another eight players from both teams received suspensions. Five Pacers players pleaded no contest to legal charges, while three Detroit fans were convicted for their role in the fight. According to David Leonard, the Palace brawl was a key moment in the NBA's history. From the mid-1980s to the 1990s, the league had projected a colorblind image, highlighting stars such as Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, whose popularity transcended race. But after the retirements of Magic and Michael, the image of the black NBA player, for many white fans, became the hip-hop thug. Hair in cornrows, arms covered in tattoos, undisciplined and unruly. As David explains, the Palace Brawl confirmed this view for commentators and fans, and prompted the NBA to bring order and respectability back to the league. In our interview, we talk about the responses to the Palace Brawl by sports opinion makers and by NBA Commissioner David Stern and we discuss larger questions of race and racial stereotypes in American professional sports, which typically involves, not only in basketball, white fans watching black players. David is a thoughtful scholar and a perceptive critic of race and sport in the United States. But he is also a fan, a big fan. And so to start the interview, I asked him, who he was rooting for in the current NBA Finals, the Miami Heat or the Oklahoma City Thunder?
1: I am not rooting. I am a uh, a, a loyal Lakers fan, so I don't I don't root um, unless uh, the Lakers are involved. Uh, and I did. It's interesting that you brought it up because yesterday I was thinking about writing a piece on all of the reasons why if I was rooting, I would root for the heat. Uh, but, I, and there are many reasons why. If I, if well, between, it sounds like
0: you've got an answer right there. Why would you root for the heat?
1: Uh, between, well, Skip Bayless um, would be reason maybe one, two, and three that if uh, I don't want to listen to him for the next three months, demonize, criticize and ridicule LeBron James Um So figuring if if he do win, he'll only spend a month demonizing, criticizing, and ridiculing LeBron James. So there's that. Um, There is all of the history of the the Thunder, formerly known as the Sonics, uh, that I think has been kind of erased, um, at at least until recently. And people like Dave Zirin and uh, David Steele from AOL have written about it. And so I think that the politics... Uh, of the Thunder ownership would be something that, that might lead me uh, to root for the Heat. I think LeBron James has been unfairly villainized. Um, that would be a reason. But I also, and this, is, this would be actually why I wouldn't root um, because it's not fair and I think it's part of the, the culture of sport today to take narratives and stories that have nothing to do with the game but I'm really uncomfortable with the way that, that the two teams have been set up by the media, that that the Thunder do it the right way and the Heat don't. I didn't know free agency wasn't the right part of the right way. Um, th- those all seem to be narratives of good and evil that Kevin Durant is, is humble, at, and he might be, and if he's not, I got no problem with it. You know, the The notion that humility is is a prerequisite for fandom in sport and particularly sports involving a disproportionate number of african Americans, But it's not a requisite uh, when we're talking about what films we like or, wow, that rock band, they're really humble. And so I've kind of pushed back even on myself to enjoy the game. And so I've actually, when watching yesterday, I, I tried to just uh, enjoy the beauty, whether it's uh, Russell Westbrook going to the basket or LeBron James uh, posting up that, that as long as I can watch beautiful basketball uh, and competitive basketball, I- I'm good. And I, I found myself muting um, and avoiding certain shows and uh, as a way to, to really reconnect with that love. Cause I think it, at times it's hard, uh, given all the the different dynamics to really get at that that love and 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 get at that appreciation um of the game. And so I, I'm not rooting for that reason because I could come up with a compelling reason to root, but I think uh my love for the game uh will will, will be what I'm rooting for.
0: So as a fan of the game, as a as a lifelong Lakers fan, uh I'll ask what, what led you to bring together your academic interest in sociology with with this love of basketball were you always interested in the sociology of sports
1: i i was although my background you know coming out of uh black studies at, at uc santa barbara uh and uh and then at berkeley in ethnic studies i, I it wasn't uh central to my research so my dissertation wasn't on sport Uh, But it was always an interest. I mean, my undergrad thesis was on the black college athlete. Uh, And then while I was at Berkeley, one of my mentors uh, was Harry Edwards. Uh, And so he taking classes and working with him. It it was always kind of a a background, the sport aspect. And as someone who loves sports and played sports, I don't think at that point I thought about the connections um, and I wasn't as developed uh, in terms of my understanding of, of culture and its relationship to politics and ideology. And so when I uh, started at Washington State University, one of my colleagues, C. Richard King, um, is someone who's written uh, extensively on sport. And so I think he and then Harry Edwards uh, and these other experiences kind of pushed me to begin, to begin to think about the ways in which sport is this fertile ground for analyzing racialization and racism and contemporary politics. Uh, and then as a Lakers fan, I, and I would say this was probably really important, that my point of entry uh, was through Kobe Bryant's arrest and the the trial, or the non-trial, because um, it ultimately never uh, manifested as a trial. And I think there was part of me... Uh, that wanted to make sense of that as an academic because I wanted to understand it in a way that I was uncomfortable as a fan. Uh, So as a fan who loved the Lakers and wanted to root for the Lakers, yet he was accused of something that angered me, that was outrageous. And so I wanted to understand it at a level to make sense of my conflicting feelings and my emotions and my my politics. And, and so I wrote this piece looking at the ways in which the media was talking about it and why and how and how in criminalizing and demonizing Kobe Bryant, they were also uh, taking the focus off the issue of, of, of sexual violence in in our society. And so I think that was that first piece that really got me to think about how the broader issues of criminalization, of race, of gender, of sexual violence, of injustice is talked about, is represented in a sports world. And and so from that point forward, I, I really began to think about ways of bridging uh, the sporting world and these these, these other debates. And, and in some ways, those worlds are already bridged. And I'm just I'm just trying to. to to think about those connections that are already
0: there. Well, following up on that, so this uh, connection of of race and sports, uh, one of the key ideas in your book, or I would say a basic idea in your book, which you make in the introduction, is that the black NBA player is a stand-in for larger discussions of race in American society. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so I really think that in our kind of purportedly post-racial moment uh, where conversations about race, even the, the more, most explicit ways that we see race manifesting itself, say in the political realm, that those uh, conversations, that the presence of race is that there's pushback, uh, that the whole idea of playing the race card is, you know, made clear in, in, in all of these spaces. Yet we have Daily conversations about race, uh, about the ways in which race still matters, uh, about racial tensions, um, and so to me, the NBA is a space that works in, in in two ways. One, there is an explicit racial conversation that happens in the NBA that that doesn't happen in other spaces. Talking about whether the dress code specifically targets black players is something that 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 doesn't happen uh, in such explicit ways in many other spaces. I mean, even, you know, recent developments, uh, you know, looking at stop and frisk in New York. You know, where where more African-American males or more African-Americans uh, males have been stopped than actually live in New York City. uh the, the national conversation about that and race is is very different than the national conversation that will happen about the dress code or, or, uh, meta world peace or run our test. Uh, and so I think there's, there's that element, but I also think there's, uh, more implicit ways that race is being talked about, uh, because of the way that the league is seen as a black league. And so things can be talked about in the NBA, uh, with the NBA player. Without saying we're talking about the black NBA player. And so that's what makes it unique in ways that we don't even see with the NFL. So that the league is presumed to be a black league. And so the NBA simultaneously is a place where blackness is othered, but it's also normalized. And so when someone says the NBA player... It's a racial construct in itself, and so I think that's where and how we get that explicit language. I mean, if someone says, you know, talking about the NBA player of today, yeah. I think it's a pretty explicit racial construct. And then when we see the sorts of of tropes and and frameworks that then operate, you know, you know, tattoos or. Uh, being a, about ego or any number of kind of long-standing stereotypes about black athletes. We, we see it, but there isn't that honesty um, of that people are explicitly talking about black athletes. And so one of the things that I argue in the book is that in a post test moment, people were more willing to explicitly uh, show their racial politics, to show their discomfort with uh, the way in which race operates or their discomfort with the number of black athletes or black players in the league. And I think we see that uh, with that post-art test, that people's discomfort becomes increasingly racially specific. So whereas before it was, well, I'm uncomfortable with the showboating or the lack of team ball or are the absence of quote-unquote textbook basketball in that post our test palace raw it's explicit that those discomforts are linked to uh particular bodies and particular uh cultural experiences in terms of linking it to Mm hip-hop
0: well let me stick with that that and that's uh, an interesting point you make that when we just say the nba player what would come to mind is is lebron or kobe bryant uh when we say an NFL player, what probably comes to mind is Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. Um, has that always been the case, or is that, is that something that's contemporary?
1: I think it's, it's definitely not always been the case, uh, but clearly since the 1970s, okay. that's been a tension that the NBA has experienced. I mean, David Stern, I want to give the exact quote, um, in 1984 said sponsors were flocking out of the NBA because it was perceived as a bunch of high-salary, drug-sniffing black guys. And a Boston Globe reporter told Stern around the same time that nobody wants to watch 10 black guys in short pants running up and down the court. And so I think that's always been a a a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just that, that the NBA player is seen as is black, um, that that the stand-in and the imagined player is black, ironically, even though the logo is Jerry West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's not just that, but a particular type of uh, African-American experience is imagined. And so despite the fact that a recent, this was a few years ago, I guess, at this point, uh, ESPN study found that 50, I think it was about 53, 54 percent of NBA players grew up in what what would be considered suburban mm-hmm. uh, communities uh, based on census data. That's not the, the narrative mm-hmm. that we get. Uh, and that narrative of the inner city uh, baller comes with all sorts of other narratives about the inner city, about uh, the experiences of the presumed underclass, the longstanding ideas of of culture of poverty, and so I think that reflects the demographics of the NBA. I mean, the NBA uh, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and even in the contemporary is seventy to eighty uh, percent black, as opposed to the NFL. Uh, it reflects the ways in which NBA players' bodies are are much more visible uh it reflects the ways that the league has commodified and sold uh, superstars in ways that other leagues don't or can't but it also reflects the ways in which basketball functions and its history in relationship to the city uh, and then lastly it just it reflects the way in which uh race operates in in, in our society i mean i think uh it it becomes a space where these kind of racial ideas can be circulated uh, in a way that is safe. Uh, you know, in some ways it reminds me of, uh, there's a book by Joe Fagan and Leslie Pika about front stage and backstage racism. And what they argue is that, that ideas about race uh, and ideas about, or stereotypes or, or racial talk is circulated in these backstage spaces. Uh, that spaces that are quote-unquote private, spaces that, that aren't very diverse, uh, and these are the spaces where racial jokes are, are readily uh, told. To me, the NBA functions in a similar way, that ideas about race can be circulated in ways that we don't see in other spaces. And, and I think in part uh, because we don't sport functions in that way. People, it, you know, it's just a game. Um, or uh, the ways in which particular narratives kind of dismiss talking about racism. Uh, But I think the NBA has long been that space uh, where there's not only tension and discomfort uh, where racial stereotypes are articulated, uh, but the way in which racial meaning really guides the kind of public discourse uh, about the league.
0: So we, before we talk about the, uh, the brawl at the palace, um, uh, we need to look at the immediate context or the immediate background, which is something you discuss in the book. And picking up on that, that quote from David Stern uh, in 1984, which is when he became NBA commissioner, that, that no one wants to watch millionaire drug-sniffing black guys. What, what then did David Stern set out to do with the NBA after he became commissioner?
1: Um, he set out to to deracialize the league that even in even if eight out of those ten players running up and down the court, or seven out of the ten were African American, that the fan and pre- predominantly uh, those white fans who would who were uncomfortable, who had bought into those stereotypes, that they would see Michael Jordan, that they would see magic Johnson. Uh, and not see, you know, as he said, high-salary, drug-sniffing black guys. Uh, So in many ways, the league sought to deracialize itself uh, through uh, cracking down on on drugs, through deracializing its presentation. And so to me, Michael Jordan's the perfect example. When he comes into the league, he's wearing a gold chain. Uh, and he's embodying a particular sort of narrative. Or even the the, stare, the story of Michael Jordan uh, that's cultivated, the mythology around him being cut from his high school team, or the, the erasure of his time in New York City um, growing up, that he becomes associated with North Carolina and not New York City. The, these are all ways that uh, the league deracializes itself. That the narratives that, that, that are generated, that the rules are, that are imposed, uh, that the efforts to, to play up magic and Jordan and, uh, really cultivate a league that is much more palatable, um, to every community. mean, um, and in palatable, it was about reimagining what and reconstituting what was Uh, Thought of in terms of blackness and the NBA. And and so I think the league went to great lengths uh, to reimagine and promote Michael Jordan as kind of this black Horatio Alger story Uh, and to reimagine the league as as being uh, disconnected from uh, black communities. And I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that many arenas are erected uh, in suburban communities. So uh, fans can go uh, into these spaces and not have to confront those stereotypes and, the, and those fears. So I, I think it's a, a whole host of ways that the League Package packages itself uh, and reimagines itself and controls uh, players so that they can be uh, consumed by that white fan base and its corporate fan base.
0: So then, getting to the central event in the book, so the the brawl at the Palace in suburban Detroit in November two thousand and four. Uh, at a game between the the Pistons and the Indiana Pacers and uh you present this in the book as as something of a turning point for the league and in the interview we're going to uh look at how you see this as a turning point but first i want to get uh what was the immediate response in the press to to the game and the and the fight
1: uh the response was was one of of shock horror Outrage. I mean, I mean that—that's one of the things that struck me was it wasn't so much like three weeks later, but this was a this was a a national story and one that was immediately constructed as as a game changer, mm-hmm. uh, as one that required immediate uh, an immediate response. Uh, So so this was clearly a moment where uh, the press, I want to say the press both was responding to the event, but also creating an event uh, that that what was important, not was not just the immediacy of this is what happened, but columnists uh, defining what it meant um, and defining daily and 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 so in many ways, I think the meaning of of the palace brawl is shaped by the technology uh, of the moment. Uh, even more, well, maybe not as much as had it happened today in terms of the effects of of Twitter. Uh, but this is really the start of the kind of talk show generation of sport, uh, where not only sports talk radio, but it's kind of the emergence of the shows on ESPN the around the around the horn pardon me interruption so i think this was a, a moment where the debate the debate culture and the blame culture that is so commonplace now uh in the sports world is really taking off uh and so the palace brawl as well as the importance of of the internet uh and so that you have a monumental sports uh, incident. Mm-hmm. You have something that that, that would matter in any era, but something that happens that then you have dozens upon dozens of columnists all writing and disseminating uh, into the blogosphere. And then you have bloggers, and then you have commenters, and then you have people commenting on the commentators. Yeah. Uh, and then you have ESPN, and then you have the YouTube videos. Uh, that then are uploaded uh, not only immediately but in the aftermath. Let me pick up
0: on that because you use that as a as a body of sources. Those uh, the the comments of readers of blogs, uh, the the fan sites where sports fans post their remarks, and uh, you know without editing, where it's just you know some fan at midnight posting after watching Sports Center, you get a pretty unvarnished view. Of you know what what is probably a white american sports fan's view of of race and and it's quite remarkable what you what you found and put in the book
1: yeah i mean I, and I think that's part of um an added element to why the nBA becomes this this space where racial meaning is 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 articulated um and is articulated with such i would say violence. Mm-hmm. Um, is is the emergence of the Internet, the emergence of these technologies. And now I would say in recent years, Twitter as well becomes the space of, of circulating uh, these conversations that may have previously happened in bars mm-hmm. or on the way home from games now become public conversation. And I think that at the same time, private. Right. Exactly. It's- and. And then I think that that shapes the way that the public discourse, the media discourse frames an event. And so it to me, the palace brawl was almost a snowball Mm -hmm. um, where you get this kind of growing level of anger and animosity um, that actually predated the palace brawl. Mm -hmm. And this became the the pretext uh, for talking about all of all of these discomforts, anger, stereotypes, but it was done in a way that that justified. So it wasn't these columnists and fans and commentators didn't want to say this, but Ron Artest forced them to. Mm-hmm. The Pacers forced them to uh, talk about what everyone was purportedly thinking. And so not only did it allow for these conversations, but it put the blame on the players themselves. Uh, and I would say that became the kind of predominant narrative, that it's the players that are forcing these things. Yeah. That If players could just wear the right clothes, if players could do the right things, then we would need these rules and these conversations. And I think it missed um, an opportunity to, to, to push back against those stereotypes that rather than the league with the dress code saying, hey, you know, we get that this is a stereotype, but players need to, to win these fans back. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than David Stern and the league and the media standing up and saying, hey, you know what, whether uh, Allen Iverson's wearing a jersey and some sagging jeans and a, or a hoodie or a three-piece suit, you need to check yourself in terms of the, the assumptions that you're making uh, about him as a person. And clearly that's not the 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 way that we went. It was about the players needing to change themselves to accommodate the discomfort and the stereotypes and the racism that that others were feeling and expressing and that's something I try and explore and kind of speak back against. And I'm clearly, you know, I also give voice to to those commentators who in the moment are also uh, speaking back, or players who are speaking back and saying, "Well, hold on, hold on. Why are we being constructed as as criminals and thugs? Mm-hmm. Why? What? What? What do we make of these double standards? Why can players go straight from uh, high school in baseball and they're seen as prodigies, but we're seen as immature? Uh, and so the book tries to to, to look at how uh, race fits into these kind of Competing and contested discursive articulations
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and and you do draw some some uh, uh, comparisons, so you just mentioned between baseball and basketball. the one that struck me as well was the uh the comparison of of basketball and hockey that uh, Uh, There have been instances in NHL games where players have gone up into the stands to fight with, to fight with fans. But uh, as it says in the book, you don't have then this uh, 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 debate about white Canadian culture and the flaws of white Canadian culture in the aftermath.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we don't see it. I actually just wrote a piece about uh, NASCAR. Um, The number of, Not only fistfights that we see after races, but guys who have been suspended or been questioned for taking their car and ramming it 180 miles an hour into another car. Nobody says, hey, what kind of message is that sending to our children or, you know, or that if if he did that on the real world. He would be in jail. These are the kinds of arguments that we saw after the palace brawl uh, and we see continuing today. And so I, I think there are a lot of double standards, not only in terms of uh, violence, but also in terms of of of, of who's a role model, uh, who, who needs an education. I mean, do we ever ask wh- what schools NASCAR drivers went to mm-hmm. hockey players um, and so it's the notion of, of who needs to be disciplined, who needs to be civilized, who needs to be uh, educated, and, and and who doesn't. So let me jump
0: off on that, and we're getting away from the book, but this is interesting, is, is you haven't seen with the recent scandal about bounties in the NFL, where I'm trying to think of the, the number of players who were suspended, how many of them were black, most uh, if not all.
1: All but, um, of, uh, Scott Fujita.
0: Yeah. And so what didn't come in was that type of, of, uh, discussion connecting it to race. What we're seeing is, is a black thuggish behavior that was entirely absent from, uh, it was, it was a discussion of football and violence and football, but race was not brought in. Why, why do you think that was the case?
1: Well, and I actually think what's interesting about the bounty, um, is, what I think the ultimate discomfort was is that it was really about white coaches. It was coaches who were encouraging uh, their players, and in this case, primarily African-American players, to engage in this behavior. And so the notion of the white coach as disciplinarian, as source of, of civility, of the source of... Providing that requisite disciplinarity was was being put into question. It was it it was the players who were doing what their coaches were telling them to do, and so we actually bring this back to the NBA. Uh, it, it's very interesting because what we saw after the Palace Brawl, especially with the efforts to eliminate uh, straight from high school players, is this celebration of. The college coach, overwhelmingly white and all male coaches who were seen as the source of discipline, as the source of teaching not only the proper way to play, but the proper way to purport oneself um, on and off the floor. I mean, so you have people who said, hey, if Kobe Bryant had gone to Duke, he would be a different player and he would be a different man. Uh, and that's why we need to stop the Kobe Bryant's of the world from entering the league straight from high school. And we, and so with the NFL, I think that's why there was so much discomfort with this notion of the bounties that it disrupted this this mythology about the great white coaches, you know, teaching uh, discipline and teaching players the right way to play uh and and so i think that added a variable um which we often don't see with the nba you know there's never a question of well are those players playing physical because they were you know encouraged to be physical uh it becomes and who knows or how does the culture of sport encourage you know hard fouls it becomes a, a referendum of, about the players about hip-hop about uh, these particular narratives and not other sets of narratives. And I think that's how we, you know, can, can distinguish uh, what comes about in terms of hockey. That fighting and hockey becomes about the culture of hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture uh, e- at worst, the culture of manhood, but not the way that whiteness plays into it. Or how people are comfortable with, with it because of the racial dynamics and demographics of hockey or same with nascar and so people's levels of comfort um with those fights not only comfort but enjoyment
0: all right well let's get back on track and, and i'll ask about uh, david stern's reaction to to the brawl at the palace you had mentioned earlier Uh, one of the the rules or the policies that the NBA instituted was uh, new age restrictions for players being drafted into the league. And uh, I want to ask about the other policy that you discuss in the book, and that's the dress code for players when they were arriving at the arena and appearing in interviews. So what was the aim of this new rule?
1: Well, and I think both rules are clearly a way of appeasing and accommodating the backlash. I mean, at one level, they have nothing to do with the with the brawl. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Either of them. I mean, the argument, you know, one person involved in the brawl, Jermaine O'Neal came straight from high school. Uh, So they, they clearly have no uh, direct connection. So at one level, it was a PR, a way of appeasing. um, This is what we're doing. This is how we're responding. We're, we're changing we're shaping up uh, but also it, to me it was more about deracializing. it was a b- way about of, of of not only telling fans like look these are the things you're uncomfortable with we're going to deal with them but it was also a way of saying to players like this is our league we're in control the power rests uh with the owners and the league office and it was a way of of leveraging that uh, to initiate change uh, and so I actually think that the age debate is is kind of interesting because David Stern was someone who actually always resisted uh, who who was critical of those who were critical of the straight from high school player. He would say, well look they're all, they're performing the league." Uh, teams decided that they were worthy of being drafted. Uh, what do you want? Uh, and that changes. And it changes because of the whole narrative about players being undisciplined, of uh, being, uh, ill-prepared, of being immature, of being selfish and that somehow that gets linked to, to straight from college or straight from high school players. Uh, and same with the dress code. The dress code was about uh, telling fans that players are professionals. And to me, professionals is a code for they're, they're white. They're not, they're not someone you should be scared of. Uh, you know, when the whole idea of, of a professional uh, is playing into a professional what? A professional in the business world? The idea of wearing suits; uh, these these are very much uh, as opposed to wearing jeans, baggy jeans, jerseys, chains, hats. These are all the ways that clothing is racialized and the attached meaning on the those those articles of clothing. And so, I think it was the league saying, "Hey, fans, you're going to see." These players as professionals this is a way of de-racializing them before your eyes so it's almost akin to jordan taking off his chain uh and putting on the suit uh and so it was a way of uh presenting the players in a way that would be more comforting uh to not only its white fan base uh but its middle class fan base uh who who often buy into notions of respectability and professionalism, but also the the kind of corporate sponsors. And so, um, I mean, the other example that we might link to is the efforts from the league and with Hoop Magazine of erasing Allen Iverson's tattoos when he was on the cover. And so it's these things, tattoos, uh, uh, do-rags, hoodies, all signify not only a particular racial identity, but a class identity. Uh, and so I think we see how race and class are operating here. Yet the league wanted to have it both ways because they also wanted to continue to cultivate uh, and make money off of the popularity of hip-hop. Uh, and so the example I talk about in the book is Katino Mobley. When he gets traded to the Kings, he's wearing a NBA, a skull cap with the NBA insignia on it, And he does an interview in it. And the league is quick to say, no, 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 no. You cannot do interviews in that hat, in that beanie, in that skullcap, because that plus your body as an African-American conveys a particular uh, identity that scares white fans, that scares those who see uh, African-American as criminals, as gangsters, as thugs that it conforms a stereotype. And so the league will still sell that, but its players can't wear it when presenting uh, themselves uh, in, in, in in public. And so I think um, you get – and you get all sorts of arguments for it, that it's about role models, that it's about uh, professionalism, it's about sending a message to kids, uh, and, or that it has nothing to do with race because it also – said that Steve Nash couldn't wear flip-flops.
0: So thinking of these policies that, that David Stern set down, um, I want to I ask you, uh, as a fan and as a scholar of the game, what, what's your judgment of Stern's tenure as NBA commissioner?
1: Well, I, 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 I'd answer that in a couple ways. One, I think one of, the, one of the things the book is trying to point out is that the league is bigger than one individual. Um, that whether we're talking about David Stern or, you know, ESPN, ABC, uh, Nike, that there are all these various individuals, institutions that are at work, but also these ideologies that, that, that are really affecting all of us, uh, stereotypes, kind of white racial framing so that, that these all play out, um in in the, the space of, of the NBA. Um, secondly, I do think David Stern has missed opportunities to not only represent his players, uh, that ownership has missed opportunities to represent their players and say, fans, we're not accommodating your racist stereotype. Our job is not to convince you that you're wrong in seeing Allen Iverson in seeing Kobe Bryant, in seeing LeBron James in these ways. It's not our job to show you that NBA players care, to convince you that you're wrong, because it puts the onus on the players and it lets racism off the hook. And so my bigger concern is that missed opportunity to challenge uh, those assumptions that not only affect NBA players, but affect teenagers in in schools to affect the criminal justice system that play out in other spaces. And so I'm not saying that it's David Stern's job to be a, a crusader for civil rights and, and social justice. But when we get the justifications that say this isn't about basketball, David Stern said it himself about the age, why he wanted uh, high, high school players not to come into the league. It wasn't about the Kobe Bryant's. It was about sending a message to all the other kids, and my response would be, "Why don't we send a message in other ways?" Uh, you have someone like Jason Whitlock who says that NBA players are promoting, uh, in his words, prison culture, for in justifying the the dress code that it's a way of, of of challenging quote unquote this prison culture. Well, I would say prison culture is promoted through a country that, that enacts policies like stop and frisk. That's what's promoting prison culture. And so to me, uh, in these instances, we see a missed opportunity uh, to uh, promote a, a more just and equitable society. But as a business that is about making money, uh, it has continued the time-honored tradition of, of commodifying and criminalizing uh, blackness.
0: So we're almost out of time, David. And uh, let's go back to the the NBA Finals. And I'll ask, uh, how would you view the the two stars of the, of the finals, Kevin Durant and LeBron James? How would they fit into your your view of the recent history of the NBA?
1: Well, well, clearly they're being positioned um, mm-hmm. as examples of the post R test and the pre R test, so or the pre hip hop. Mm-hmm. Kevin Durant is being imagined as a Michael Jordan esque player in terms of his racial body, uh, his no, you know, the notions of humility, um, and even even when the age debate was going on, he was actually cited by columnists as an example of why even one year is good. Uh, that he grew a lot, and so there's this whole story about how immature he was and how he watched Pokemon. <gasps> And then he went to University of Texas and now he's, you know, he's mature beyond his years. Uh, so even the way he's talked about now seems to play on this idea that that he was immature and then he went to Texas and now he has this high basketball IQ and and he's humble and he's a team player and he does it the right way and he signed for less money. And so there's these, all these narratives that imagine him as as the good guy, as the good player. Um, And we even saw this last summer. We saw it in competing ways. Mm -hmm. The whole celebration of him for going to play flag football and just being a real guy and going to play the rucker as if he was the only guy playing in in summer leagues. But, you know, he was with the people. Yet when he took off his shirt at a couple events and people saw that his entire torso was tattooed, there was this, like, shock, like, maybe he's not what we've been looking for he's not Michael Jordan whereas LeBron James has come to embody everything that's wrong uh, with the NBA in terms of free agency in terms of the way in which he's been positioned as the me first generation which is interesting because when he came into the league when he was with the Cavs when he was coming out of high school in many ways he was positioned as the anti or it's the perfect blend of being uh, hip hop, of having swagger, of being tatted, of being connected, but being in Ohio, being uh, a team first, pass first uh, player. Uh, And of course that all changed. Uh, And I also think it changed with Durant's ascendance. I think the need for LeBron James as the next Michael Jordan, uh, one, change with the decision that he couldn't be the next Michael Jordan, and two, with Kevin Durant. Uh, and I think what people are missing is, one, why either of them has to be those figures. Why does Kevin Durant have to be humble in order for us to love him, in order for us to root for him? And why does LeBron James have to be constructed as as selfish or mentally weak Uh, or just be, you know, or being someone who's great because of his physical body and not his amazing uh, basketball IQ or his hard work. Um, So you get these these narratives, and to me, they're both great, and I want to know why there is that yearning to position them as good and evil. And I think Kevin Durant, and I'm not saying he's not, an amazing player, but I think uh, a player like him, a player like Blake Griffin, clearly are benefiting from the post-art test cultural landscape. The yearning for a player who can appeal and who can be be sold um, to red state America, and you know, I talk about in the book the desire to win over red state fans and. Uh, the league bringing in someone like Matthew Dowd, a a GOP uh, uh, strategist uh, who worked for uh, George W. Bush, that that Durant is benefiting from that, Uh, and not that his play isn't justifying it, just like Jordan's play justified their ascension. But their ascension over other players is as much about this ideological battle, this cultural battle, this culture war uh, because he becomes a, it's not about race. We love Kevin Durant. We just don't like LeBron James, but I think each are wrapped up into kind of race class uh, uh, assumptions. Um, You know, even the way in which family kind of plays out Um, or, you know, doing it the right way. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the right way is. Um, as opposed to the wrong way and why in the NBA we talk about this, but we don't talk about corporations doing it the right way and the wrong way. We don't talk about politicians or those getting into Ivy league schools the wrong way versus the right way. It's LeBron James should be celebrating it for doing it his way. Kevin Durant did it his way, but I, but I do think these are all interconnected Uh, even eight years out the palace Raw still uh affects the way that the league is marketed the way that people talk about the league and the fact that when meta world peace elbowed james harden that became the 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 frame or point of reference points to to how it remains uh, a defining and controlling moment in the nba's history mm-hmm.
0: so what are you working on next what's your what's your current project
1: I actually don't have a current project. Um, I'm at the moment. I've just been writing a lot of commentaries and kind of looking at the the, the landscape um, of the NBA. There, there's two projects that that I've thought about and I've begun to work out on. One is um, looking at uh, basketball as a transnational racial project. So not only looking at Yao Ming uh, and Uh, jeremy lin uh and the globalization of the nba but also uh the way in which the nba is marketed particularly in china Mm -hmm. and so if i did this project i'd want to actually talk and interview players that have played in china but one of the things that struck me when i've been there um actually right after it probably was 2005 i was in taiwan and china and then recently was that kobe bryant when he was not welcome in the American sports media, when uh, companies were dropping him left and right as spokesperson, as endorser, he was quite visible uh, in China. And so I'm curious, um, or of that fact, or the fact that when Yao Ming was in his last couple of years, he wasn't even in the top 10 of most popular players. If we look at Jersey sales, so that's one project. And I have a long-standing desire to write um, a biography of, of Harry Edwards, and so that's something I, I would like to do and, and, and work with him uh, and, and, and do uh, a biography of him. So I'm still thinking about it, and and um, but in the time being, I'm, I'm just writing a lot about about sports uh, and race and its interface with these kind of broader. Uh, issues. So we open by asking uh, uh, who you're rooting for.
0: You you steered away from that question. Let me ask your prediction: Who's going to win? How many games?
1: I actually predicted yesterday, and I'm I guess I feel validated. Um, I predicted that the Thunder would win, but for the sake of LeBron James, uh, for the sake of him, uh, and a really tired narrative, I'm hoping. Uh, well, I'm not rooting. I'm hoping the heat in and on several last second shots. Uh, although someone will, you know, it will be because Shane Battier gave him the pass and or it will be I heard something that he made a last second shot with with uh, in game 7 when the clock was running down or that last three pointer Skip Bayless said oh it's because the shot clock was running down and he's better when he doesn't have to think. It was like wow, we can just we can rationalize and explain and dismiss any greatness with whatever narrative we want. (laughs) I, I think the thunder will win. And I'm going to say in six.
0: You've been listening to an interview with David Leonard about his book after our test, the NBA and the assault on blackness published by the state university of New York press in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from military history to religious studies. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find daily links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.